This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history. And by our patrons, Eugene Lewis, Deb Potter, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Robin Brown, Mary Jones, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Ling, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantelle Oliver, Katrina and Kristen, and Caitlin McTaggart. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. It's August 1791. It's a dark and stormy night mm. in the Bois Caiman, the alligator swamp. Oh, no. <laughs> Under cover of darkness, hundreds of slaves from plantations across Haiti are gathering. <laughs> the thunder and lightning, high winds, crashing waves are all auspicious signs. <laughs> Wait, what year is it? 1791. Oh! Haiti. Haiti. Cecile Fatiman steps in front of the fire. And man, she is a powerful presence. She's a mambo, a voodoo priestess. <laughs> and also, by many accounts, she is a Dahomey Amazonian warrior in the West African tradition. Uh-huh. Like, all uh, um, the woman king. Yeah. She begins the ceremony honoring Izili Dantour, Mama Danto, who is the mother goddess of Haiti. And FYI, these are real field recordings from a voodoo ceremony. Then, Cecile becomes possessed with the spirit of Izili Dantour. And she is angry. She's angry for the souls of the slaves. She's angry about the cruel oppression of her children. Mm. The brutal French colonists and slave owners must leave this place. The time has come for liberty. The drums beat, whistles, and gunpowder, they say, calls down the spirits and the people dance around the fire. Mm. The voodoo priestess has a little sister, 13-year-old Marie Louise. Did she tag along? We don't know for sure. We can know almost nothing for sure about this ceremony, but what I've given you is the most likely account. Hmm. So we can't know if she was there for sure, but I think so. Hmm. She almost surely would have heard that it was going down, and she may have even followed a young man there, Henri a slave working for her father's hotel. Her father is a a black freedman and her mom is a formerly enslaved woman. And together they are, they run a fancy hotel. So 13 year old Marie Louise is watching quietly from the sidelines. As her powerful sister offers up the performance of her lifetime. It's a haunting, overwhelming moment 
awakening rebellion in the hearts of hundreds of oppressed slaves. There's a prayer, they say, and some of the earliest writings about the event, these are the exact words of the prayer. The God who made the sun, who brings us light from above, who raises the sea, who makes the storm rumble, and all this while there's a storm raging around them. <laughs> that God is there, do you understand? Hiding in a cloud, he watches us. He sees all that the whites do. Throw away the image of the God of the whites who thirsts for our tears. Listen to the liberty that speaks in all our hearts. And then Marie Louise watches as her sister slit the throat of a black pig. And every person in turn takes a blood oath, smearing its blood on their forehead. She has bound them all in a pact to act. Within days, the whole northern plain was in flames. Sugar plantations and grand houses burned to the ground. Slave owners met a vengeful fate. The Haitian Revolution has begun. No one ever told and me that story of how the Haitian Revolution started. Me too. Textbooks and even a book I was reading last night. When they tell the story of the Haitian Revolution, it's all the big men doing the big things. Yeah. And nobody tells this story. Wow. The story you are about to hear, nobody tells. Hmm. Oh man, 13-year-old Marie Louise could not even begin to fathom what is in store for her. And it is so wild. It is triumph and disaster on a spectacular scale. It's, okay, so here, here's my best way to sum it up. It is The Woman King, the movie, meets Princess Diaries, which then morphs into Pride and Prejudice and ends up Antigone. <laughs> you cannot make this stuff up. <laughs> wow. And, and through all the drastic changes in her life, and through the whole of the Haitian Revolution, I just keep asking two questions that are so interesting to me. One, who is the enemy? And two, what is the goal? Mm. And it's one of the big enlightening questions, not just in her life, but in history itself. <laughs> so let's go. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Hello, listeners. I'm Vanessa Riley. I am the author of Island Queen, Sister Mother Warrior, Queen of Exiles... I have a murder mystery series and a lot of historical romance. I just finished Vanessa Riley's book, Queen of Exiles, about Marie Louise. Ooh. And she found her when she was writing another historical fiction novel, Sister Mother Warrior, which is about the Haitian Revolution. Hmm. I had written a book, Sister Mother Warrior, and I, being that nerd's nerd, of course I have to translate the best known historical writings of the time 
One of them, a man named Thomas Matteo, he wrote the history of Haiti literally 10 years after the revolution. So some of the leaders, he's actually able to talk with them. And there's a name in this book, Marie-Louise or Louise. Marie-Louise's story really only begins with the revolution because Henri, her father's slave at the hotel, hmm. he becomes her husband. Hmm. She married Henri when she was 15, two years into the Haitian Revolution. She has a son, and Henri hmm. is swiftly ranking up and up and up in the rebel army under the famous Toussaint Louverture. He's the one who's in all of the textbooks. You know, yeah. He's the great leader of the Haitian Revolution. Right. And she is the wife of the number two man, Henri Christophe. And she's just a little, little snippet here, a little snippet there. And I was like, I wonder who she becomes. And at first, they're relatively quick to drive the French out. And things are looking hopeful. Hmm. I mean, of all countries, the French should understand. Because in 1791, they are in the middle of their own revolution <laughs> in the name of liberty. So they get it, right? Yeah, people always do a great job of expanding out their own desires to people who they think are lesser than them. <laughs> Toussaint Louverture believed that Haiti and France could coexist, that that's mother-daughter relationship, so to speak. Toussaint said that all of them should send their children to France, particularly the black generals, as a sign of goodwill. So, Marie-Louise put her little Francois Ferdinand on a boat to France. Mm. But over the years, as things with France turned sour, the French government rounded up all the Haitian children and put them in an orphanage. The boy was starved, and he died in the orphanage. And Louise never wanted him to go in the first place, but she gave in to her husband's opinion of this is what we should do to prove our loyalty and our allegiance to France. And it cost her her first son. Haiti has driven the French out, but they're constantly threatening to come back. And mm. the big first question is, okay, what is gonna unite Haitians together? We're not gonna win this revolution unless we stand as one. I talk about this a lot in my classes. I think I've talked about it in a previous episode, hegemony, mm. power structures and how you kind of have to get the people to agree on a particular hegemony, like a particular social force that's going to unite everybody. Yeah. You could get everybody to rally around a sense of nationality, or you could get them all to rally around race. You could get them all to rally around religion or social class. Mm. Um, those are the really big ones around which nations build themselves. And so Haiti's like facing this big question. What is going to define Haiti? Is it going to be our race? Is it going to be our religion? Or is it going to be our social class? And hmm. there are different factions trying to build Haiti around all three of those things and big, big fights over really the soul of Haiti. What does it mean to be Haitian? Yeah. It's another way of saying who is the enemy hmm. and what is the goal? Is the enemy France or is it white people or is it yeah. slavery or is yes. it poverty or is it... Is it Catholicism? Yeah. Because if we're going to embrace voodoo, and it was a voodoo ceremony that mm. launched the whole thing, then what we want to do is oust all of the Catholics. But actually, if we've converted to Catholicism, then yeah, maybe... Yeah, there's a lot of Haitian Catholics at this point. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a lot of slave owners like Marie-Louise's own parents who are black. Yeah. 
And so do you want to target the, the slave owners no matter their color? Mm. Or are we targeting only white slave owners? Mm. There's actually a ton of white indentured servants from Ireland in Haiti also mm. who are just one tiny step above slaves. So this just becomes... A, a, a huge looming conflict. And are you saying that identity is complicated and intersectional? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm saying what I find so fascinating in history is watching the man in all in all its forms <laughs> try to convince the people that this or that hegemony is the one that matters. Yeah. You know, like, no, forget about forget about religion. That doesn't matter. What we really care about is our skin color, you know, mm-hmm. or no, your skin color does not matter. What really matters is eat the rich. Yeah. You know? There's so many ways. So it's this constant discussion between the the power, the man mm. trying to convince people to shape their identity in this or that way. And that's exactly what's going on in Haiti. And yeah. it's so fascinating because Marie Louise is right at the center of all of it. And she's married to one of the highest ranking guys in the Haitian army. Hmm. I, I think she was a calm person. I think she's one of those people who walks in a room and kind of studies the room before you notice that she's there. But then you notice she's there and she has this light and this presence about her that draws people. And though it seemed at first like the revolution was going to be quick, it wasn't, I think, because of the battle over the different hegemonies and Haitian identity. Toussaint Louverture, he went to France. This is this big grand gesture of like, I'm going to be a diplomat now. And he was imprisoned in France and froze to death. Mm. So now it's up to the generals to keep Haiti going. And Henri, he's like the number two man now. Mm. He was made a lieutenant. He's rising in the ranks. They have a beautiful house. You can see the sea from their house. It's right there in Le Cap. They're trying to build this great new capital at Le Cap. But sure enough, Haiti is headed for civil war, Mm. while also trying to hold off the French. And next door, the Spanish-Dominican, now the Dominican Republic, is constantly threatening to invade. Mm. It's such a dangerous mess in Haiti that Marie-Louise and her growing belly have to go into hiding. She's literally hiding out in caves, barely scraping by an existence every day. She expects word that her husband has died in battle. Mm. And through all of that, she gives birth to two girls in the years that she is in hiding. (laughs) The oldest is Amethyst, and she has chronic respiratory problems that become emergencies anytime she gets excited. Mm. Asthma. Probably asthma. Yeah, Yeah. but we can't say for sure and so it's a very Jane Austen type of situation where like the dear girl let's not let her feel a thrill for her delicate constitution Mm. except she's in a war zone zone. and in hiding in a cave and she's a target and also when it looked like all was lost and the French were going to take Le Cap Mm. the new capital city the rebels decided it would be better to burn the city than to let the French take it. Mm. When they had to burn Le Cap, his was the first house. So that's Henri. I'm going to burn my own house because I'm following orders and, and we're burning it up so that the French, when they try and take the city, have nothing. 
The second daughter was Athenair. She was born in 1800. And so by this time, the war has dragged on for nine years. Mm. And after three more years, France is so weakened on the international stage. Mm -hmm. And their revolution has gone so catastrophically wrong that they've got an emperor now. <laughs> and Napoleon opts to just give up the Americas. Hmm. He sells their giant North American colony to Thomas Jefferson, of course, and just walks away from Haiti. So now, who is the enemy? Hmm. And what is the goal? Haiti turns on itself. Hmm. It crumbles because... Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the new emperor, the man who unified everybody, is assassinated. It gets nasty. In 1804, a big group of people decided that race was the key hegemony, the key power structure, and a kind of race-based witch hunt broke out where anyone, white, mulatto, regardless of what they did in the revolution for Haiti, they were hunted down mm. and killed. And in the midst of this, Marie-Louise has another son. She names him Victor. Hmm. Victor, he is the heir apparent. Victor and his dad do not get along. He's very young, and, you know, as a young person, you get that rebellion. Sometimes his relationship with Henri was contentious. Once again, you go back to the first son, who should have been the heir apparent, who would have been old enough to handle these responsibilities. He's kind of an unwilling heir apparent. So, as they're forming their new nation, they have to decide who, what will we select as our heritage? Are we going to embrace being from West Africa as mm -hmm. a nation of former slaves or model ourselves more on France because we're a French colony? Mm. And there's also this big push to model themselves on Russia because over all these years of revolution, the only nation to recognize Haiti as independent was Russia. Mm. It's their only ally. And that's a big, powerful, very wealthy ally. Hmm. So what are we going to be more Africa? Are we going to be more France? Or are we going to be more Russia? Are we going to embrace voodoo or are we going to embrace Catholicism? And if Catholicism, over the past decades, there's been three different camps of missionary monks in Haiti. There's the Franciscans, the Jesuits, and the Capuchins. Hmm. And they do not play nice with each other. So which Catholicism? So, exactly. This is a fundamental identity war. Race, class, religion, nationality, not just at play, but being actively debated and even actively weaponized. Mm. Henri wants the world to respect Haiti. That's his number one thing. Mm. And he looked out at the world stage and he saw these kingdoms and peerages and he was like, if we are a kingdom and we model ourselves after the European stylings, they will respect us. So he says, let's give the world Haitian royals to rival the best Russian czars. Mm. That's the, uh, the Maori strategy that said, oh, you respect queens, you respect kings, fine. We'll have a king, we'll invent a king. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he looks at his own family and he goes, this could be a model family. Well, lo and behold, that number two man becomes the number one man. Henri declared himself king. And she, this simple officer's wife, who was once a hotelier's daughter, is now queen of Haiti. But to do that, 
you are divorcing yourself in some aspects of your African lineage. And the African ways of fighting, the African networking of the people, the principles that help them gain their freedom, he's literally trying to turn away from that because he knows the rest of the world wants to mock Africa. She's been in hiding for nine years. She just led this scrappy existence. Mm -hmm. with her sister is a voodoo priestess. And so Louise is instrumental of trying to help him remember we are still who we are and we owe our heritage and our freedom to the African ways. You can't turn away from that. So give me your best guess. Where do you think she lands on these three hegemonies? So you got like, where, what's she gonna choose for religion? What's she gonna choose for social class? And what's she gonna choose for race? Well, um, so religion, you would presume voodoo because of her sister. because yeah, Cecile, yeah. But exactly. if her husband wants them to be royals and wants them to be respected, he's certainly going to be Catholic because people think that's normal. Ah, yeah. So she aligned with Catholicism. By all accounts, she was a true believer. Mm. She was devoted to her dying day. So she aligned herself with the Capuchins, and she was full-on Catholic. Mm. Full-on. Okay, so as far as social class goes, she going to choose equality among nations or equality among each other i mean i would i would want her to choose equality among each other but once again if her husband is on yeah. team let's show off and it's so interesting to put yourself in her shoes too because you can believe in equality among each other but then imagine if a really charismatic leader who happens to be your husband is like listen you can do more yeah by being a queen yeah. and you're like well maybe i can and you have grown up a rich girl. I mean, you've grown up mm -hmm. the daughter of the hotel owners, surrounded yep. by servants and slaves. Mm -hmm. yeah. so you can see how, I mean, I think it could happen to anybody. You could easily talk yourself into that. Be like, yeah, I can't, I'll be a model. Yeah. It's an unusual person who says, no, no, I'm not special. Yeah. It might seem bad, but I could help steer Haiti in the right direction. For the greater good. Yeah. Then what, what is she going to choose as far as race? Uh, she, does she want to build a black nation or is she welcoming of other skin colors? Well, now you've befuddled me because she's not choosing anything that I would expect her to choose. So I have no idea. Ah, yeah, that's the thing with her. Yeah. Like all along. Mm. She does not, in fact, want to build a black nation. Mm. They are very welcoming of people of other skin well, she colors. she has a mixed race sister. So. Yeah. Yep. Not that that always means much to Not a lot of people, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. here it does. Okay, good. St. James Chronicle, Tuesday, May 26th, 1818. The following are some new regulations of Christophe of Haiti. A white man who marries a woman of Haiti becomes a citizen and, after a residence of a year and a day, is eligible to all offices and may become a proprietor on the island. A white woman, marrying an inhabitant of Haiti, becomes a female citizen of Haiti. A white man of any part of the world, marrying a negress in the place where he resides, may come to the Republic. On his arrival, the expense of his voyage shall be paid him. Half of the country was on board, half was not. Hmm. 
So he claimed the North and called it the Kingdom of Haiti. Hmm. And the South remained a republic and was like, what are you doing? <laughs> the whole point we, is that we, we eliminate. We just had a war over <laughs> Just to think of that rise and what that must have meant. A queen of a country that's been split in half. There's constant war. Your husband's a war hero. You're, you've lost already a son because of the revolution in Haiti. And now you're going to be queen and our remaining children are going to have a target on their backs. Let's pause for one second to thank our sponsor. This season of What's Her Name is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society. The Women's History Initiative highlights Utah's dynamic history makers. Eight sovereign nations in Utah since time immemorial, pioneers, explorers, immigrants, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dreamers who have made a home there ever since. And the long-awaited statue of what's-her-name favorite Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection at the U.S. Capitol within the next few months. Just the 13th woman featured in the hall. Follow at Utah State History on Instagram to catch Martha on the move as she makes her journey to D.C. Join the Society to read the Utah Historical Quarterly, attend free virtual events, and get news about the future Museum of Utah. And teachers at all levels can find all kinds of curriculum resources on their website, history.utah.gov UWH. Utah Women's History. We need a queen. Hmm. We need a stately, mannered, elegant, dinner party host. So she becomes that. Hmm. Wow. From giving birth in caves to... Yeah. yeah. And she's got this Dahomey Amazon sister. Sister, yeah. This is where she becomes Princess Diaries. You know, she's mm-hmm. like, and now I will learn how to wear these clothes and... It's my fair lady. <laughs> yes. I can see her looking out at the people. What if I can help? What if I can make their lives better? What if I can go back and all the things that we fought for, I can help Henri make it happen. It's my duty to step up. So I just, this woman just sounded so amazing. I wanted to follow her, her rise. And can you guess what happened? It didn't work very well. Henri, the idealist, (laughs) he had his enemies massacred. Mm -hmm. He had a massive palace built for his family, and I mean massive. Marie-Louise visited while it was under construction with her younger sister. So you and your sister are, are literally going to go see this surprise your husband has for you. And you find out he's building you a palace in the middle of Haiti. I'm sure she was just like... Hold on. What Wait. are you doing? What are, what are you doing? Yeah. That, to me, I, it, I say it with humor, but that's just incredible that that's going to happen and that he follows through with this and he builds this immaculate palace. I wish some paintings of the interior survived. There are snippets. I used uh, various sources and I try to repaint the, the, the opulence. Because, you know, we have images of Bridgerton, we have images of Pride and Prejudice, the balls. This is really what that looked like. 
because he's importing European furnishings and, and linens. Um, they have a special type of duck that was his private ducks. And whenever he had state dinners, the ducks, he, they would, unfortunately, poor ducks, they would be sacrificed for these, but that was part of the opulence, the best champagnes. And so you can just ballet. He would bring people in to do ballet and opera. And for so many people who have this view of a backwards country or a country brutalized by war or uh, poverty to know that this was once that country to me amazes me. So I, I had to bring you there. I had to bring you there so you see all this. But at any court, there's always shifting politics. There's people who are trying to push different agendas. Who is the king going to listen to? So there's a bit of a struggle because, you know, Henri, man of the times, he wants the wife. You know, I know you did all this stuff before when we were during the revolution. And I know you kept the kids safe as you hid in the, in the woods and things like that. But now you're the queen. So I want you to look pretty and wear these jewels. <laughs> and this is not the woman you married. You married a woman, a builder, just like you. He goes deeper and deeper down this psychological rabbit hole. Mm. You know, there's enemies from within. They're coming at me from all sides. He has these really dark moods. Mm. Unfortunately, when he would go into some of these, I'm calling it manic spirals, but his mental decline, she's the only one who can calm him. She's the only one who can reach him from those dark places and pull him back. I take you on a journey of the, the global politics that are happening. And I show you, without saying it, the many points the world could have stepped in and there would have been a different story for Haiti. He made a name on the world stage, but it wasn't uh, enough to save Haiti. As I write, I, I try and put you in the room. I want you to be in the room where it happens. You want to sit in these conversations. You want to waltz the waltzes. You want to ex experience the moments in the garden as well as those moments where bad, bad things, things did happen. happen. He's holding off France. Mm -hmm. He's obsessed with military strength, but he's also losing the people real fast. <laughs> and in 1820, after losing yet another battle, he had a stroke and then committed suicide before he could be captured. Mm. In the book, she puts Marie-Louise right there in the room with mm. him, and they threw his body in the lime pit and escaped with their lives. But 10 days later, her youngest, Victor, who's now 16 and the new king, he was murdered mm. in the palace. Some say he was stabbed, others say mm. he was lynched in the palace. But Marie-Louise and the girls, well, they're just girls. No threat here. No problem. So the new government gives them a house in Port-au-Prince and an armed guard and says, like, carry out your lives here. No problem at all. It's only when he dies that, and the South, the Republic, that takes back over and unifies the entire country, they don't want to respect anything that Henri did. So the over-militarization, the building of the citadel, which is the eighth wonder of the world, they no longer make even sure the cannons are operational. The palace goes to ruins.
So now, who is the enemy? What's the goal? Hmm. You were once royal, but also you, like, know that you weren't really, really yeah. royal. And maybe you were wrong. Maybe you were right. I mean, she she gets to decide her identity going forward. She could stay in Haiti and maybe even join the new movement and become an equal citizen and do her part toward the a new direction. Hmm. Or she could leave Haiti and live as a queen forever mm. in exile. She could bring her daughters. They could escape to Europe. Yeah. You know what she did? Well, they did kill her son. Yeah, they did. And she set sail for Britain mm. into exile, forever a queen. Hmm. Incidentally, this is amazing because she does it in 1821. It's forever embedded in my mind as the year that Bubulina launches hmm. the revolution in Greece. <laughs> At the same time, Bubulina is overthrowing the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Marie Louise is leaving for Britain. Hmm. She is standing up for the monarchy, <laughs> but she's going to do it in Europe from afar. <laughs> This woman kept going, no matter how many things were thrown at her. She kept going. She lived a full life. She made sure her daughters lived a full life. And even though tragic things happened, she kept going. She's, she's such an inspiration. It's, I think just one or two of those things would have knocked the normal person out of the game. A spark, a sparkle, a glittering second in the sun is all it takes for celebration to turn to agony. Enjoy the moments before the flames. Madame Christophe, 1847. So, when they make it to London. Thus, our plot twists, and we are now in a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> and they've smuggled the jewelry that Henri gave them. This is Louise's big idea. I'm going to sell this. I'm going to pay for my daughters. And two days after getting to London in the Osborne Hotel, which is the hotel with dignitary stay right on the Thames, the jewels are stolen by me. I'm like, could you make this up? Could you make this up? Um, and this woman, she literally rebuilds her husband's fortune. And she wants to uphold his vision of these two girls, letting them be princesses. And so they join the ex-royals and, and current royals on the, the royal tour. So I take you on some of that journey as they're intermingling uh, with society. Books and newspapers always call her a sorrowful queen. Hmm. But was she? <laughs> sorrowful Queen Louise. So I had this picture of when they escaped Haiti, that she's living in a hovel, she's totally in isolation. And then I look at these newspaper clippings that show all this fabulous travel. And then I find people writing travel diaries, talking about going to the theater and seeing the queen there. I, I just, it's a whole nother life. And I think we need to understand someone can go through lots of hardships, but yet they can come to the other side. And, and she kept going. She lived her life. <laughs> 
She joins the Regency Spa circuit. (laughs) (laughs) And she has two good reasons to do it. One, she has her sickly oldest daughter who can take the waters. And then she's got the marriageable younger daughter Mm. who needs to make a suitable match. So she's just full on Jane Austen. Perfect. They were accepted in society. There are rumored romances that were written up in the paper. Everywhere they went. They're the first media stock royals. People wanted to know, what does she look like? What are they wearing? Where are they staying? Are they waiting on diplomatic papers? If there's a man, what's his, you know, who's interested in them? And literally down to putting the hotel where they're staying. Like, like, can you put a target on me a little bit bigger? <laughs> and to see this woman, this reluctant queen, come to a point where she's commanding the world stage, basically doing what Henri wanted, but couldn't do. He wanted the rest of the world to respect Haiti, to everyone to look at the Haitians as just as good as everyone else. Louise being able to go onto the world stage and hold her head with dignity after everything that's happened and to be respected in this world theater, I think is a triumph. She's doing it through soft power and it's just amazing. One of the first houses she bought in England is in Hastings. I had the privilege of actually walking into the house. The house has been kept authentic. The pine floors, you just you could feel the bounce still in the pine floors as you're walking. I was able to walk upstairs to her bedroom and you could see there's a private garden that she can overlook when she wakes up in the morning. I come back down to her sitting area and this huge window and you see the sea. And I know it must have reminded her of that, the new part of their marriage, when everything was good, when he was healthy and in his right mind. It's a beautiful love story, but it is a woman finding her own and, you know, how much of a salvation can you be to your partner when they're in mental decline? A mother struggling to make sure that both her daughters have as much life as possible when one has a terminal illness. And then the guilties that you feel of doing something for yourself, taking a moment for yourself, remembering that you're still alive when you have these daughters. It's a full life. You get the good and the bad. The fact that she got up every day and went about her life and tried to make sure that the doors had as much life as possible. And the younger daughter did, in fact, make a suitable match. But the oldest, Amethyst, she's getting worse and worse. And they eventually chose Pisa in the Grand Duchy of Tuscany. Italy didn't exist yet, as their home. And Marie Louise bought a mansion there. And that's a major global port with a lot of Spanish and North African presence, so racially diverse, but also very firmly Catholic. Hmm. I think she tried to save people. I think it was important to save herself, too. Because the places she chose to live, they are some of the most beautiful, most iconic places 
she loved to walk places in Florence. It's amazing just to walk and see the rivers. She loved rivers. She loved moving water. I think, yeah, saving people was important, but also saving herself. She and her daughters, one of the last things they did was build a church in Pisa. But for a very, I mean, for a sad reason, so that Amethyst could be buried Buried, there. It was part of a monastery that was for the poor. Just a few years later, the second daughter, Athenair, her new husband died. And a couple years after that, she died too on her birthday after a fall, which I suspect was more like a jump. Oh. So the two sisters are buried in very elaborate big tombs flanking the altar in this chapel that Marie Louise built. Louise unfortunately outlives all her children. Marie Louise lived to age 73 in Pisa. And here's another incredible overlap. While she's there, Anita Garibaldi (laughs) is waging war in the name of liberty, (laughs) not just in Brazil, but in Italy. In Italy, wow. And while Marie Louise is living there, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany is seeing all kinds of changes. And eventually it becomes Italy itself. Garibaldi's Roman Republic. Yes. And all of this while she is watching the saga of Haiti unfold Mm. from afar. She outlives everyone who was against the kingdom. Every single one of the men who came up against her husband, all the advisors who she felt weren't doing a good service to her husband, she outlives them all. So many presidents come and fall, military dictators come and fall who tried to fill Henri's shoes, and they all failed. And she's watching that, and she's older now. She knows she cannot fight those fights. So there's a bittersweetness to that. She's, she's a resilient woman. There are some tragedies, and she lost a lot of people. But she held her head up every day, and she kept moving. She stayed in touch with her sisters. Her older sister, the Mambo Cecile, she lived to age 112, they say. Wow. Cecile chose voodoo, not Catholicism. She Mm -hmm. chose class solidarity, not monarchy. And they seem to have chosen completely opposite paths for Haiti. But this is an amazing thing I found. Cecile had one child, a girl, and named her Marie Louise. Oh. So there's such ties there such an interesting untold story it makes me wonder if marie louise in that classic gender hegemony that she's doing she's being the good wife she's doing what her husband wants Mm -hmm. and she spends the rest of her life doing what her husband wants yeah or if she really believed that herself but Mm. like she and her sister had a respectful understanding i don't know yeah we do know that at least once Cecile visited Marie-Louise 
in Pisa. Wow. But we don't know any more than that. Hmm. And we'll never know because she wrote so many letters, which were all destroyed in World War II. No! Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I would love to see what some of those letters, I would really love to see them. <laughs> I look at the odd relationships, people, friends, that friendship sets that she makes, like Chantabran, uh, who's Ambassador Chantabran, who was one of the biggest people against Haiti, becomes an advocate because of part of the association of just knowing her and talking with her. She, I, I think she was very, she became very skilled, a very skilled woman in conversations. She knew her weight, she knew her influence. I think you would just, it would be like such an impression to just sit there and have tea with her. And the story she could tell because yeah, at one point, she's in the circuit dinner, you know, with Napoleon's brothers. And you can just, to me, it's just the oddest thing. All of these, and it's, this is the ex-royal thing. They could, I could have taken over your country. We could have, my armies could have met your armies. But hey, we're going to have champagne and, and duck. I mean, it's the great, it's totally crazy. But I think that speaks to how the world is. This these weird interactions, these things that time and distance makes you see in such a different manner. Her life is just fascinating and I am just so thankful that I was able to research it. She's multifaceted. She's nothing that what you've heard. She's amazing and I think your journey will become more interesting when you see her journey. I would love to sit down and ask her, what defines you? Yeah. Who is the enemy? What is the goal, Marie Louise, in any, hmm. and, and in any of those phases in her life? Who's the enemy to you in this moment? Because really, like, the way that you see the man trying to control the masses back then, in every time period, and today, yeah. is the man will try to convince you who the enemy is. And if they can convince you this or that group is the enemy, then they can control you, you know? Yeah. Now you have bought into the narrative. Yeah. Same thing with what is the goal? What is the goal in any given moment hmm. for anybody? So I, this is constantly on my radar because, like, even just watching news or even watching people on TikTok, any kind of political pundits, anything yeah. like that, you listen to them with the question in your mind, what hegemony are they trying to sell yeah. me here what are they trying to convince me should be the core of my identity oh it's so so fascinating and also really helps me understand people that i disagree with too mm -hmm. you know because then i can just be like oh you're a you're a that hegemony kind of person <laughs> i see you see the world that way yeah. oh, so interesting <laughs> based on her actions it seems like she decided to model monarchy she wants a she wants a strict social hierarchy and she's all about catholic religion and those seem to be the two hegemonies that defined her in the end mm. and her vision for haiti failed and she spent the rest of her life in exile but also the more she watched 
the more Haiti floundered. Mm. I mean, Haiti's in the headlines this week again for gang violence and just it's descended once again into chaos. So which path, if any, was going to work? Mm. No matter what happens in life, you're still moving forward. You're still learning. You're still willing to try something new. I mean, she could have stayed situated. She kept moving. She kept taking the girls and kept going out that door and travel. Because travel wasn't easy. It's not like you could hop in a plane. You're, you're getting in a carriage. Your bones are getting shook every time you go up and down the hills and whatnot. Or, you know, going on boats and rocking and all these different things. She kept going. She could have stayed in one place. I think there's something about keeping moving and keep remembering you are alive that we should resonate with and embrace. Thanks to Vanessa Riley for bringing us the story of Queen Marie-Louise Kristoff. You can find her book on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where you can also find links to the anthropological recordings that I used for this episode, including that waltz Creole, which was recorded by Alan Lomax on site. Only a tiny percentage of his recordings have been digitized, but you can find them at the Library of Congress. And find the link on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. And while you're on our site, check out our tours section. There are a few spots left on our Lost Women of England tour coming in June 2024. Other music for this episode was composed by Elfent, Kevin McLeod, Jimena Contreras, Kinkas Moreira, Sir Cubworth, Aaron Kenny, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Brian Bolger, Daniel Foster Smith. You also heard a couple of clips from the audiobook, which was narrated by Robin Miles and used with permission. Thank you so much for donating. Thanks for listening. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>